This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand. Good morning, Canberra. Welcome to another hour of science with Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. Thanks very much to Aidan for presenting Irish Voice in the hour beforehand, but now it's our turn to take over and bring you some of what's been happening in science this week and um, our little interesting bits that we want to bring to you. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to be here on this very sunny morning, which is why we started off today with a, a track from They Might Be Giants, Why Does the Sun Really Shine? Some great science in music there. I'm joined in the studio today by two lovely ladies, um, and we're going to have some fun. On my left is Emily. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Broad. And uh, on my right is Jill. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Broderick. Now, uh, Emily, I'm going to have yes. to talk to you for a second. You rocked up to the studio this morning on something very interesting. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. What, what was that? <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to ride my electric skateboard to to the studio this morning, which nice. is good fun. Yeah, yeah. electric skateboard. You... you I've parked, I've parked it outside, so yeah. it's just a, it's a slightly larger than normal board, uh, yeah. and they've replaced the normal skateboard trucks uh, with slightly sturdier ones, and mm. it's got an electric motor on it, so oh, you charge awesome. it up the night before, and yeah, off yeah. you go in the morning. And how fast can you go? Um, I haven't actually been brave enough to go as fast as the board goes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it goes about 20 or 30 k's if you get max speed. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you're going downhill, it goes a bit faster. Awesome, yeah. awesome. So a lot of fun and environmentally friendly yeah, too. Really. And Jill, how did you get to the studio this morning? In a car. In a car. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, and just as exciting. <laughs> definitely, definitely. All right, well, we should get into some proper science uh, for now. And uh, today being the uh, 16th of January, what happened on this day in science, Jill? Well, all the way back in 1866, um, some inventions came around, and this one was by Everett Hosmer Barney, such an interesting name, um, and he patented the all-metal screw clamp skates. So these are skates that attach to normal shoes and are tightened with a key. Um, yeah, so very different to the kind of skates we have now where you, they're actually the full shoe. These ones attach to your shoe. And they became, they stopped being popular, shockingly, um, when we got modern athletic shoes and they don't have as hard an edge so you can't actually clamp the skates on. Yeah. And also we did put wheels directly into our Onto new shoes. shoes. I like I like these clamp ones better. I think they're a great idea. Isn't that what little kids have? Like the little strap-on skates so their wheels... I remember them when I was younger. I had yeah. strap-on ones that you just put over your shoe. But now that nowadays they've put wheels in to... Runners. Oh, the healers, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's true. Huge advances kind of in technology since 1866. <laughs> shockingly. <laughs> what else have we got, Em? Well, almost 100 years later, um, there was the test, first testing of the hydrogen bomb in 1952, and from that they actually managed to find several new um, things in the periodic table. Elements? Elements. Elements. Yes. There we are. <laughs> We're after a good start this morning. Um, and, yeah, so this day in 1953, they managed to find about 200 atoms of an element called fermium, uh, which has never been found again. 
and they don't believe that because because fermion degrades really quickly uh, that it'll ever actually be useful, um, nor will it ever be weighed because we can't actually collect enough of it to to weigh it. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, they they still like to make these. Um what are they called? Post, post-uranium. Uh, Trans-uranium, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Trans-uranium elements, because there was one made last year. They, they finally got element 112, oh, really? um, yeah, isolated, and, and they, they like made a few atoms of that in the, 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 the lab. And personally, I can't see the point, to be honest. No, apart from filling in the gaps. Yeah, like, well, yeah. It's, it's the Some end. people like the order. They could oh, just yeah. stop, though. There's, they, there's... they could. Yeah. But then what are they going to do? Yeah. Well, if... It interests them, Broderick, it interests them. It does, it's very theoretical. If anyone can actually find out the reason why we have need all these elements, then I'd be very curious to know. But for now, I think it's a bit of, you know, a very theoretical science. But anyway, also on this day, uh, in 1967, uh, was the death of Robert J. Van de Graaff. Now, Van de Graaff was an American scientist and professor of physics down at Princeton University, um, but he was also a man who liked to make a lot of things, and he's probably best known for his creation, the Van de Graaff Generator. Now, I'm sure many people have seen this before. The Van de Graaff Generator is basically... A uh, big metal ball, and then uh, there's a big uh, a motorised insulating belt, usually made of rubber, uh, that runs around, and it conducts electrical charges from a high-voltage source on one end of the belt to the inside of the metal sphere that goes on the top. And uh, since electrical charge resides on the outside of the sphere, it builds up to produce an electrical potential that's much higher than the voltage down the bottom. And uh, this is an amazing machine, which... Mainly nowadays it's used to cause people's hair to spike up at, at science centres and that sort of thing. Um, a great use of this technology. <laughs> but, yeah, pretty amazing stuff, uh, building up static electricity there by Mr Van de Graaff. All right, well, that's what's happened this day in science. But this week we've had a couple of um, interesting things happen. And, um, Em, I know you've been moving house recently. Yeah. And not that that's an interesting moment in <laughs> no, science. No, not particularly. <laughs> It's not but, an interesting moment for anyone. Really. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I want to talk to you about, you know, what you look for in a good house. You know, what sort of things are you looking for? Okay. Um, oh, yeah, I've got a great house. For me, I don't have a car, so location is, location. is pretty pretty big. Yeah. Um, and then apart from that, as long as it doesn't leak. leak that's always good. Yeah. Or yeah. filled with bugs is another, oh, yeah. another downside. Do yeah. How about the people that live next to you? I've no, never met them. You've never met no. them. You, you don't. <laughs> you don't mind them? about the neighbours. Neighbours don't bother me. Like if they're quiet, they're quiet. Well, the, it's interesting because I, I, I assume you were going to say quiet there. Um, but it's it's some from some research recently. Reef fish when they're looking for where they want to stay, they actually want noisy neighbours. They're looking oh. for the opposite. Yeah, this is research out of the universities of Auckland and Bristol. Um, do, do noisy neighbours attract the predators more? Well, so the quiet a, fish. A fish get really noisy. Well, they are, because the, the shallow waters around coral reefs can actually be quite loud. Um, there's a combination of clicks and pops and chirps and scrapes by the uh, resident fish, shrimp, lobsters and sea urchins. Um, you can't really hear it above the water, but you can hear it. Um, you can hear it when you go diving. If you sort of just sit on the bottom um, and settle down, then you can tune out your, the sound of your breathing and just tune into the, the noise of the, the reef. Noise. Yeah. Really cool. Well, these researchers were measuring uh, using hydrophones, oh. which is an underwater microphone. There you are. Um, and the, the the biological symphony that you're getting when when you're listening to this water varies depending on which animals you've got in the um the local community. And what the the researchers found was that um 
they actually did some some work and uh, put some sound systems next to artificial reefs they'd built on sand flats. Um, and then uh, scuba divers collected the juvenile fish that arrived overnight in that reef and played recordings from two types of habitats in there um, and compared fish numbers from um, these two habitats uh, with those reefs without playback, so when they added sound and when they didn't add sound. And what they found was that reefs with added noise um, attracted more fish than those without. And excitingly, um, reefs with lagoon noise attracted more coral brims and reefs with fringing reef noise, so they're the two habitats there, Um, the fringing reef noise attracted damselfish. Um, And this is their natural habitat preference in in real life. So obviously what they're showing is that the fish kind of end up congregating together, I guess, by listening out for these noises um, and seeing where they can live, which makes sense, I guess. Yeah. If there's lots of fish in one spot, then it's obviously a good spot for fish, so they want more people there. Yeah, sort of well, it's like you see when you see barnacles on a rock. There's not normally one by themselves. It's all of them together in one bunch, and I assume fish would do the same thing. Yeah. If someone's found a good suburb, that's where you jump on board. <laughs> you move in <laughs> to where it's popular. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's one more story that came out this week that I thought was interesting. And um, look, it's been a few years since I've um, sat an exam, um, and I'm, I'm looking at you. Guys. It's been a few years since your last exam. Uh, you two. Two years. Yeah. 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 And did you guys ever stress much about exams? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that's what they're designed for is they're just designed to stress uni students out and make our lives, you know, Hell. not quite as relaxed <laughs> as, as they really are. It's payback for the relaxed semester leading up to the yeah. exam. Yeah. yeah. Well. No, they're not to test your knowledge. No. No, just to stress you out. Exactly. Well, hopefully not anymore because um, a new study has shown that just a simple reading, a simple writing exercise can relieve students of exam anxiety and help them get better scores. Um, It's pretty amazing stuff. Um, Being published recently in the journal Science, um, and it says students who spend 10 minutes before an exam writing about their thoughts and feelings can actually... um, free up their brain power, previously occupied by testing worries and all that sort of anxiety, and um, improve their grade by a whole grade point. So basically go from a B- minus to a B+. Plus. Nice. Yeah. So all they're doing is just taking 10 minutes before the exam to write about their feelings um, and that sort of thing. It was tested with uh, uh, college students in a lab setting and uh, also with high school students in a classroom. Um, and th- so they first gauged the level of test anxiety um, in all the students. And those who, who really did suffer from anxiousness before a test, uh, they were offered this writing intervention. And basically the, the researchers think that this, this whole worrying thing uh, is competing for your brain power. So your brain's trying to think in your short-term memory, your working memory, and if it's all worked up with worrying about stuff, then you haven't yeah. got the room there to do your exam calculations and that sort of thing. Um, they actually use the same sort of thing to combat depression, um, which is where this idea came from. You know, by getting people to use expressive writing uh, where people write repeatedly about a traumatic or emotional experience over several weeks of months has shown that that decreases their worries um, in people who are depressed. And so they tried this with uh, the exam students and now suddenly they're scoring a whole lot better, Uh doing a whole lot better in their exams. Yeah, well, lecturers always say, oh, make sure you relax before it, don't overstress, but that doesn't help. But maybe the writing down sort of thing would actually 
or meditation of some form? Mm. Or yeah, well, I, yeah. I, um, in my high school exams, I listened to um, classical music <laughs> before I started. Look, Why am I not surprised? Well, I, I got told that it worked, and I did, except for my German exam where I listened to German music <laughs> for the half hour beforehand, and, and that got me in the mood, and I, I did all right. So the, the catch with the classical music, though, is that there are actually there's actually only a specific like period of classical music. If you listen to the wrong period of classical music, apparently it has no or negative effects. Like if you <laughs> so don't if you, get the right year. Yes. So if you listen to Baroque or Romantic, yeah, yeah. it's wrong. But the right. So um, what is the right period? I don't remember. I just remember that... Um, so I'm from Queensland and we have the QCS test. Yeah. Um, and so we rocked up and the teachers thought they were being all nice by playing classical music for us. And all the music students just stressed out because apparently they were playing the wrong type of classical music. And we were all going <laughs> to fail. Oh, you're making me very interested <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious as to what type of music. Because I've always heard probably m- only the music students that actually failed because they were too busy stressing. Yeah. No one else knew it was the wrong type. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting test there. Yeah, the placebo effect coming in. You know, this is the wrong music, therefore you're going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we've got from this week in science. Um, and today on Fuzzy, we're going to be talking about something a bit different. Last week, if you're listening in, we're talking about um, auditory perception and visual perception. Um, And there are a couple of our senses. And today we're going to carry that on, talking about senses, but we're going to go somewhere a bit different. And I'm going to leave you guessing what senses we're going to talk about today as uh, we're going to take a break for a song. The time is 11.46 and you're listening to... Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio, broadcasting in Canberra, or maybe you're listening on the web at 2XXFM.org.au. That was Old Man River with his song La. Very simple title, very simple song, but lots of good fun. And um, my name is Broderick, and today we're going to be talking to you about some science about our senses. And uh, look, we're going to be kind of kind of talking about the sixth sense you know that sort of extra sense that we have but not that sixth sense um in fact no not that sixth sense at all we're going to be getting scientific today and um we're not just going to be talking about the sixth sense we're also going to be talking about the seventh eighth ninth and even more senses because I know most of you guys probably got taught in primary school that there's the senses to see, hear, touch, taste and smell. And these five senses are what we learn. And they probably came from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And they make plenty of sense, if you'll pardon the pun, because, <laughs> because they are the main senses we use. Um, but scientists define a sense a bit differently. And in fact, they, the number of senses we have, according to scientists, ranges from 8 to 23. Wow. Yeah, so more than five, definitely more than five, um, but we're not sure, you know, how, how many we do have because there's no actual firm agreement amongst neurologists um, of the definition of a sense. Um, the, the definition that I like with the reading that I did was um, a sense is a faculty of the body with which we perceive outside stimuli. So it's, it's part of our body that's receiving stuff that's going on around us. And for the five major senses, that makes pretty good sense. Um, I've got to stop doing that. <laughs> um, because, you know, our eyes receive light so that we can hear, uh, we can see. Oh, wow, ear- I didn't know you could hear through your eyes. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. Is that one of your 23rd senses? Well, no, that's actually kinesthesia, um, where you start... Oh, yeah. um, 
no, I take no. that back. It's not synesthesia. Um, where you see sound. And, where you see sound and, yeah. and um, hear colours and all that sort of thing. But that's not what we're talking about today. Exactly. We are talking about simple um, senses that when they're not getting mixed up. Um, you know, our eyes receive light, our ears receive sound. Skin has nerve receptors for touch. And our nose is filled with millions of receptors for smell. And our tongue is covered in taste buds to taste our food and drink. But there are also other outside stimuli that we receive. and um, But how this happens might not be quite so clear. So to start off with today, Emily, yes, you're going to talk us through nociception. Yeah, and I'm actually I'm really glad that you didn't introduce it as pain. Because pain is actually something that's slightly different. Because you can have pain. So no, nociception, I should probably explain first. Nociception is the sense of a noxious stimulus. So something that's damaging to your body or to yourself. Um, so it can be a mechanical, a chemical, or a thermal um, stimuli. Uh, but pain is more the interpretation of stimulus, and it's more like a learned response. So you can have nociception, so a, a noxious stimulus, without having pain, and you can have pain without there actually being um, any stimulus for it. So people who, who walk on fire uh, yeah. are subjecting themselves to a noxious stimulus. They're, they're burning the soles of their feet, but they don't feel the pain because they've because of the way that they they sort of train for it. Um, they're able to not interpret that stimulus as painful. People with phantom limb pain, however, have the pain without there being any stimulus to trigger that pain. So they have this interpretation of pain without they're actually yeah without anything stimulating. So it. so when you're talking about a phantom limb, this yes. is someone who's had that limb amputated. Uh, amputated. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, so commonly, like if you commonly phantom limb pain happens in the periphery. So if you lose your arm above the elbow, you'll get pains where your fingers and hand should be. Uh, and if your leg is amputated above the knee, then you'll you'll get muscle cramps in the soles of your foot. That's no longer there. Um, so you can you're feeling this pain, but it can't like it's not there because yeah you don't you don't have that part of your your limb anymore. Uh, which is, yeah, a very, very curious distinction between the two. And I think it's often misinterpreted. Most people just assume that pain and nociception are the same thing, mm. but they're not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so so chemical, chemical nociception are things like uh, everyone's cut up onions and started to cry. Um, that's because of the... Yeah, chem- I blame onions anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, nothing to do with the, that sad movie that you're watching no, whilst cooking dinner. No, nothing at all. No, no, never. Um, but yeah, and the, the burning sensation from chilies um, is also a chemical uh, stimulus that, that can cause us pain. And it's, it's thought that the chemical, uh, the chemical pathway to, to, for nociception is as old as sight. So if you trace it back... Um, so if you trace it through other other species and everything, uh, evolutionary wise, uh, it developed around the same time that we developed sight. Um, so I mean, yeah, it's one of our oldest senses. Yeah, that does make um, <laughs> sense. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Gosh, uh, I'm going to have to get my thesaurus out in the break and <laughs> look up. But it does because you know, without having a pain sense, um, we well rather nociception, it, it would be difficult to survive because we do so many things that would cause harm to ourselves yeah. without realizing they do cause harm yeah which is um which is curious because there is there is a genetic um situation where you're born without any nociception yeah i've heard about that it was yeah. in the girl who played with fire book 
the I, sequel to the girl with the dragon tattoo I a never, guy in that I never read that book uh, a guy in that had, didn't feel pain and he was actually uh, ended up with yeah a lot of damage to himself quite easily because yeah. he didn't know what was happening yeah well like they like parents have to if they if their child can't feel pain they have to teach their child to just say ow whenever they do like if they fall over they have to say ow uh, regard even though they can't feel anything, just so that someone can go over and check them out to make sure they haven't hurt themselves. Yeah, and they have to go to the hospital a lot more often because yeah. if you fall, they don't know if they've broken a rib. They have to actually go and be x-rayed yeah. before they actually realise they've hurt themselves. And um, I'm, I'm a bit of a uh, Grey's Anatomy tragic. Yeah, um, no, that's, this, is, yeah. this is where I'm basing my <laughs> yeah. stuff from All too. Right. Let's, let's bring out the real science from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, there, there was an episode where they had a little girl um, who had congenital... It's called a congenital insensitivity to pain, but, yeah, she couldn't she couldn't feel pain. She had no nociception. Um, and she thought she was a superhero, and she would encourage kids in the schoolyard to beat her up uh, because she couldn't feel pain. Um, and, yeah, it took, it took them... It was just, very curious episode where they tried to diagnose the fact that this little girl couldn't feel pain. I think House had a similar oh, sort of I thing. I haven't watched House. Well, see, I tend to get confused between the two because <laughs> it's just all medical drama. But yeah, no, I think they've both had the same sort of thing where they can't. It takes time to diagnose it. Yeah, yeah, because it's not there. Um, in the end, I think they did the freezing water test. What's the freezing water test? Um, so you stick your hands into a bowl of water and ice. And you time how long it takes you to be so painful to pull them out. Um, and the little girl just would have left her hands in there until she got frostbite and they fell off. Mm. But obviously wow. they, they stopped the test before it got that bad. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but that's a, a realistic, like, she, she would have just left her hands in there because she couldn't feel pain. Mm. No, no susception. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah, um, but one of the... Um, one of the other things is that sort of distinguishes between no susception and pain is that, you know, you can have two equal injuries, so Jill and I can both break our arms um, and we'll interpret it differently. So we'll have a different, we'll have a different pain threshold. Um, Mine's we'll- definitely lower than yours. It's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's meant to be an, uh, a compliment, so I'm going to take it as that. No, it, no, it is. It is? Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, or I could break, break both my arms and one will hurt more than the other. Um so pain is yeah, it's just a, an interpretation, and it's um, very contextual. So like you know, you see little kids running around the playground, um, and one of them will fall over, and they kind of look around quickly to see if anyone was watching before they start crying. And if mm. not, if they don't notice anyone watching, they get up and they keep on playing. And if they do see someone watching, then they start crying and they feel really hurt because it's yeah, again, it's that interpretation of the the nociception rather than pain itself. Yeah, well, that's right. I, um, I remember a great story about when my cousin um, fell over and, and grazed his knee and stuff, and he got up, and his, rather than his dad pandering to him, he said, no, nah, all you need to do is just brush your hands together, <laughs> brush it off, and you'll be fine. And so he just looks at him and goes, oh, all right. And then um, later on that day, I saw him running again, and this time he actually really fell over, like he went, did a big slap, straight face down, but he was all by himself. And so he kind of got up, and he was really in pain. But he did, he'd been taught, so he did his brush his hands off. And then he had another thing. He's like, no, I'm still in pain. So he brushed his hands off again, and then he was all right. <laughs> but it really is just that process in your yeah, head yeah. of transferring it. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing I find interesting with pain too and the nociception is the, the comparison between women and men. Yes. Because... <laughs> <laughs> See, it's funny because, yeah, you'd think, 
well, I don't know what you think, but women um, often feel more pain just because they have more receptors for it, I think is the case, um, uh, rather than men who, who have got less receptors going on. But then women and, and childbirth is the ultimate pain, and, and whether comparative to that, you know, everything seems tiny in comparison. I don't know. It's, it's such but then it's hard topic. to compare because you've never had a man go through childbirth, yes. Yes. so you yeah. can't. Yeah. It's pretty hard to compare the right. the same kind of thing. Yeah. And there is there is especially in Australia that whole sense of, you know, men should be tough, um, which alters your your interpretation of, of nociception. So, yeah, it may so not men be are more less likely to admit admit to pain or even the like with the kid. Yeah. They're more like less like less likely to feel pain because they don't want to. Yeah. Whereas women it's the late damsel in distress Just. kind of feeling. So if you're injured and you you know you have a big whinge about it, you get this you know you get all the special treatment, whereas men don't have that. Yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting. I've just brought up some research here on the computer, um, looking at, the, at comparing the table. <laughs> comparing the, the two sexes uh, and their their sensitivity to pain, um, and it's saying that it could actually be the architecture of the brain more than anything too, um, and the way it operates because. Um, Men ha- actually have a pain-suppressing circuit which links their brain to their spinal cord and when this circuit's activated by pain, endorphins are released and endorphins, yeah. obviously, the good chemicals in your brain, they make you feel pretty nice and that helps lessen the feeling of pain. Um, and new studies, um, although this is back in 2008, but studies back then showed that women don't have this circuit in their brain um, and so the, the pain-killing endorphins aren't released when they go through that pain circuit, which might... Um, explain why, yeah, women can feel more pain uh, so not being suppressed. So then if you chocolate while you're in pain, would that help? Of course. Possibly. Because um, it was supposed to release yeah. endorphins. Yeah, yeah. Next time it's just break another excuse to eat chocolate, really. Yeah. <laughs> but is that, because endorphins are released also when you do lots of exercise, if you push past that point, you get that, that rush of endorphins. Yeah. Does that mean that women are less likely to get the, um, the endorphin rush connected to exercise well it it's all about the the circuits in the brain because i mean this is a pain suppressing circuit in men that helps to release these endorphins but you get in pain Um, when you do you do you do it depends i don't know the pathway that it takes when you're exercising um but it's it's this study sort of showed that that pathway that goes through the male um, brain isn't being used for pain in females. Um, and so there could be another pathway for them, yeah. um, which in terms of not so much exercising, but anaesthetics and that sort of thing when we're trying to block pain um, <laughs> is really interesting because, you know, a lot of studies that were initially carried out on anaesthetics were done on males or male uh, lab animals and that sort of thing. Um, and maybe they need to do a bit more work with females to see <laughs> how we can block the pain for women instead by could, following a different pathway. Yeah. pathway. Yeah. yeah. And um, as you're talking about pathways um, and pain, they've actually recently discovered that, you know, that like you say, oh, I've got hurt feelings and we kind of, we, we attribute these uh, pain descriptors onto our feelings and onto our social life. Mm. Yeah. Well, researchers have actually found that that's because there's a legitimate connection between physical and actual sort of nociception um, and social pain. So they did a study uh, where they got a whole bunch of people and they all, they all met each other and then were taken into separate rooms and put in MRIs. They were playing a, um, a volleyball game. So they're, they're lying in their, this MRI machine and they're playing this computer game. And what they were told was that they were on a team with the people that they'd met in the lobby. 
where in actual fact everybody was the same player on the team, part of it, <clears throat> and they were just playing a computer game against computer characters. And there were three different programs. There was a um, three three different games. So there was one that tested for uh, implicit exclusion. So the pe- person in the MRI was told that they couldn't play the game because there was a technical fault, and that their MRI was not or their their game was not connected wasn't able to link up with the other players in the game. So they had to sit there and watch. And then the second game they got to play, and it was just a normal volleyball game. And then the third time they played the game, they got about seven passes, and then the computer was programmed to not pass the ball to them anymore. So they would be (laughs) standing in the corner of this game, and it would just keep on playing, and they wouldn't ever get the ball. And so it was, t- it was testing for social exclusion. Yeah. Um, and they actually found that social exclusion uh, triggers the same pain pathway, same nociceptive pathways in the brain as actual physical pain. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was cool. Does that kind of imply to the same sort of thing um, in relationships? You know, when you break up with someone and you get the, the, bro- the broken heart yeah. and you yeah, feel totally pain does. in your chest. Yeah, and they, they think that it's a... Um, they think that it's because... You you know you've got a better luck better chance of surviving if you're in a pack and if you're part of a family if you've got those really strong connections. Oh, so they okay. think that the negative association of pain if you break those bonds was originally designed to sort of help keep people together. So yeah, Which I thought was really cool. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And it, I mean, and last week if you're listening, we were talking a lot about. Um, a bit about the placebo effect, mm-hmm. um, again, uh, in terms of those those fantastic power bands that have frequencies <laughs> in the hologram that resonate with the uh, the human body, which finally got outlawed by the ACCC, which was great news for yeah. science. Um, <laughs> but it, it is that placebo effect, again, I suppose, yeah. of our brain um, controlling uh, the pain within our body. Uh, in this case, for, for social reasons. Yeah, yeah, and like they've they've done tests on. I think they're actually like proper guinea pigs. Um, and not just you know, three article guinea pigs, but yeah, they did a test on guinea pigs where they um, they took a mother guinea pig uh, that was pregnant and altered, like they they gave it. I think they gave it like an anaesthetic or something to alter that that pain pain pathway in the mother's brain, and it actually meant that once she gave birth, she was more the guinea pigs were more likely to abandon their children. Oh, wow! Yeah, because they they didn't have that that connection, and because they altered the pain pathway. Wow, amazing so, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting things indeed. And so that's certainly another sense in there that I suppose people would often relate to touch, um, but really it is a different sense to touch. To touch, yeah. Um, yeah. And while the nerve receptors are under our skin, they're different nerve receptors to the ones we use for touch. And another um, similar sense is thermoception. Um, which actually does have a lot to do with pain as well. Um, and this is the sense of temperature mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, how we sense different temperatures. And once again, you know, we have these these um, thermoreceptors under our skin uh, and they are different nerve endings to pain, but pain receptors do respond, you know, when something's far too hot, far too cold, like the ice bath test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you put, you automatically pull your hand away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's um, the same sort of thing. But, I mean, thermoceptions are really interesting thing. Um, and it's amazing actually how accurate the humans can be. Mm-hmm. Um, comparatively, um, tests have shown that um, we can actually 
differentiate between one quarter of a degree oh, Celsius. Really? Wow. Yeah, this is comparatively, so it's not oh, actually okay. feeling. You the... can't sort of touch something and go, oh, oh that's no. about 23.25 degrees. <laughs> no, no, we're not that good at numbers, but making a comparison is something that humans are really good at with thermoception. Um, and yet, like I said, a quarter of a degree is our, is our, um, uh, the variation we can detect uh, in our hands. Now, I'm not sure how they did the test, um, but yeah, that's, that's what the data says. Because <laughs> it, oh, it's just, um, I, I remember in my undergrad doing it, the test where you have you have the ice bath and you have um, warm, like not hot water that's going to burn you, but relatively warm water. And then you also have a third bowl that's just room temperature, so it's halfway between the two. And so if you put one hand in the cold water and one hand in the warm water, and then you put both of them in the in the middle bowl... Um, the hand that was in cold water will feel like it's burning and the hand that was in warm water will feel freezing. So I'm just curious as to how good our comparing, comparing skills. Well, I think like. that's more a case of, of tricking the senses there and it's one of those illusions. Mm. Um, and I encourage our listeners at home to try that one out, actually. <laughs> it's, it's a really amazing sensation. Um, yeah, so get your three bowls. Hot water from the tap, not the kettle, and cold, yeah. <laughs> cold, cold, ice cold water, and then the warm water in the middle, and put them in the hot and uh, cold for about thirty seconds, Dickens. and then both in the warm, and um, yeah, look, it's an amazing. Don't sensation. they have something at Questacon where you put your hands on it and it's feeling hot and cold at the same time, and then it almost uh, feels like the it's coil. pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. this red and blue coil. It, in the new perception deception thing. So, yeah, you're touching both hot and cold and it's almost like you feel pain because your senses don't know exactly what to, what to, to, do. to Yeah, that's right. They just get confused. And like we were talking about last week with some of the audio um, illusions and visual illusions, we can mm. trick our thermoception just as easily too. So it's worth giving a go. Um, the other cool thing about thermoception I found was that um, it's actually most accurate around um, your face, um, because we've got a lot of receptors around our face. Um, you know, you can often put stuff up to your cheek to feel when it's warm. Like, I know, I know who put their irons up to their cheek to see if it's hot or not. Have, have you not seen, oh, I've seen oh. that before, but it's probably not the best spot. You could no. use your hand. No, but your hands aren't so good at thermoception because they're, they're pretty, mm. a bit more insulated. But one of the fan, my, most favorite examples of this was on, um, MasterChef. <laughs> where, where the guys, um, you bagged this out for Grace Anatomy, oh, and now you're no, pulling out the master But there's good science here. There's good science because what they were, the couple of guys got a reward, and they went to see a chocolatier, um, and they were. Uh, now I believe it's called tempering the chocolate, yeah. where yeah. You, you melt it and then you melt it. Yeah, so you you melt it and then you bring it back together. To, and you have to get exactly at the right temperature. Yeah, well that's right. And the the guy, the chef that was doing this, the chocolatier, would test it by putting it on his lips, oh. and he would be able to tell through many years of practice whether it was hot or cold enough to to whether it was at the right temperature to stop the tempering and move it and do whatever they needed to next. So it's quite impressive. Wow. So it was only the lips because they're the, the most, most sensitive, sensitive out of all, all the parts of our body, mm-hmm. which I suppose makes some kind of sense when we're putting things inside yeah, our body. if you're going to put yeah. something inside, <laughs> if you're about to put it on your tongue and burn your tongue to no end, if you put it near your lips, your lips are likely to tell if it's going to be far too hot, except when it's the inside of a pie and your lips can't tell that. Yeah. <laughs> or or a right. hot liquid in a mug, because the mugs, the outside of the mug doesn't get hot ah, enough. Yeah. Tricky. Bent my tongue. Very difficult. <laughs> 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 <On> the drive. <laughs> Uh, very difficult to tell <laughs> indeed. Um, so, yeah, lots of different senses. So we covered two of our senses, so we're up to seven now. We've got our five normal, pain and thermoception. We might get through a few more 
um, in just a moment, we might also look at some of the animals that have different senses too. But before we get into that, let's have another bit of music. Hello. Hello. Hello there. That was the Cat Empire with their song, Hello. The time is now 12 past 12, and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday here in um, 2XX 98.3 FM. We're having a lot of fun with senses today, and... Um, Pushing past the sixth sense, and we've gone into seven, but before we do eight, nine, ten, and a few more, um, we should have a look at animals too, because animals have more senses, or different senses rather than humans, and uh, some of them are quite interesting. Yeah, well, we know animals have some of the, like, obviously a lot of the same senses as us, and then a lot of them have those, but they've supersized them. So, like, dogs have this amazing smelling ability, and apparently some types of bears can smell people up to 18 miles away. So if you want to escape a bear, it's pretty difficult. Actually, um, sorry, just on that, I, I must tell this story. Um, if you ever need to escape a polar bear, listeners, the way you do it, and, and I did say it, is, um, no, you don't, you don't cover your nose. Oh, that's what they do. They do. Yeah. They cover their noses to escape. That's right. No, what you do is you actually oh, start running away from them and stripping off at the same time, one piece of clothing at a time, because what the polar bear... They get bit- scared by the sight and turn away. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, quite, not quite. But they start smelling each piece of clothing as they go through. So they get to your T-shirt or whatever, and they go, oh, what's that? And they stop and they sniff it. And so that slows them down. And then once they get sick of that, they go, oh, there's nothing here. They go on to the next piece of clothing. So as long as you can run and get to somewhere where there's more clothes and you yeah, can warm up again, going. you'll be fine. <laughs> but yeah, there well, you But apparently these um, bears can actually smell for like up to 24 hours or 48 hours after you've left. So if you've been at a campsite and you've bailed 24 hours ago, they can keep following you. So it's, you know, if you drop your clothes, you've got to have dropped them. A long time ago, we'll just keep going. Well, as long as you well, can get to somewhere where you're, you're safe and locked away from them. Yeah, yeah within that fine. time. Because right. <laughs> if you're running from polar bears, you're in Antarctica. And oh, so okay. you're probably going to have a metal door you, where, where so. the rest of yeah. your clothes well, you'd are. You'd like to think that you, that you weren't just randomly <laughs> dropped in the middle of the <laughs> Arctic. <laughs> well, drop your arm. Although bear... You know, oh, yeah. bear yeah, might bears, do it. Bears, I reckon yeah, he'd try it. Yeah, yeah. Drop him in the Arctic and see if he can escape a polar bear. So yeah, they've got all the normal ones and some of them have them. And we mentioned thermoception and most people know about snakes that they have thermoception as well, that that's how they sense their prey. They feel the heat and what they have is these it's only it's not all types of snakes, it's only a few types, mostly vipers and boas and pythons. Yeah, they all have them, and they have these sensors on their face called pits, or there's kind of like holes on their face that have all these sensors inside, and they actually can, yeah, we can tell up to a quarter of a degree. I think they can sense heat between 0.0002 of a degree, so they can quite tell, and what they do is they receive all this outside information, um, and yeah, they can actually build a thermal picture of the world and if you watch any documentaries about snakes they'll show you all these sorts of pictures that we imagine the snakes can see and they can tell the distance and the direction that these different heat levels are coming at and how fast these things are moving and that's how they can strike with such accuracy even in the pitch black so that's again one of the senses we have that they have in extreme um but yeah one of the senses i've looked at is echolocation it's something that's used by, um, we've mostly heard about it in bats and dolphins and toothed whales. And it's the process of determining the distance and direction of objects by using sound. So 
they send out a sound and they measure how quickly it comes back and what direction it comes back from. Um, so they can do this and they can figure out where objects are, how fast things are moving, and that's how bats get around in the dark. It's how whales detect prey and things in the ocean and how animals in murky waters figure things out. Um, but the interesting about, thing about echolocation is that it actually can be used by humans. So humans that have gone blind or were born blind are actually able to... Yeah, not deaf. <laughs> we were talking about it before and we accidentally said deaf. We got it wrong, yeah. but blind. Um, so they can do clicking with their tongue or tapping noises with their cane and they're actually able to... So we've actually... When you've lost a sense, your other senses are heightened mm. and you're actually able to sense the distance and things like that. And you can see people walking around. Like there's YouTube videos of people doing this and they walk around and you wouldn't be able to tell that they were blind. They do all sorts of things. They play basketball and all sorts of crazy things. And <laughs> if anyone's ever seen Daredevil, I mean, that's a bit of an extreme example. <laughs> but yeah. he does the same sort of thing. He, yeah. When he's in the rain with Electra and the rain comes down, he hears the different levels that the rain's come off so he can build this sort of picture of his world. Yeah. And that's I need to see this the movie. same sort of thing. Yeah. No, it's pretty impressive that, um, you know, our bodies are... are that train that when we do lack in one area, we can suddenly mm. increase our senses in another. And um, I know a lot of blind people certainly, you know, have increased uh, hearing sense. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. But the, the, the fact that we can do echolocation is yeah, pretty I'd, amazing. I'd always known about it because it's in animals, but yeah. reading that it actually happens in humans and seeing how... Because I thought maybe you could kind of be like, oh, there's a wall through that, but they can actually tell small objects. It's not as in much detail as the animals have, but... It's a lot more detailed than I thought we would be able to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's one of the cool things they've got. Um, one of the other ones I love, I'm a bit of a marine buff. I love my ocean animals. So the other one I got into was electroreception, which um, is the ability to perceive or sense electrical impulses. Um, so it's particularly, it's mostly in aquatic creatures, and that's because the electrical impulses... Um, are more likely to travel better through salt water than through air because salt water is a much better conductor, so it's a lot easier to. Um, and, yeah, they use it to find objects, and they can also use it for communication. So it's quite... And there's two different types of this. There's ones where it's passive and active. So passive is where they sense the electrical impulses sent off by other things, and this is what sharks do. So they have these things called ampullae of Lorenzini, <laughs> which is a fun thing to say, fun to learn to spell at uni. Um, so they have these, and they're kind of just sensors on their snout that pick up electrical impulses um, sent out by other animals. So when your muscles twitch and things like that, they can even detect things like under sand and all those sorts of things. And so they can find them, but it's normally only when they're up close. So they've got to be quite close. They use other sensors like smell and sight and things like that previously. When they get up closer and these animals are trying to hide, they sense their electrical impulses, and sharks actually have the best sense for it and they can find their prey really easily and so that's passive where you receive a different um you see receive someone else's impulse and it's because of this that we're actually developing the the shark scaring off techniques oh, the, the ones... shark repellent yeah, yeah. shark yeah. repellent that's the one i think they should call them shark scarer offerers yeah. but yeah shark repellents and they use electrical impulse signals to confuse the sharks and yeah. freak them out and a lot of the time that's why they bite boats and all sorts of things because they um, misread the electrical impulses and it's more a confusion rather than a, that sort of thing. So, yeah, they can actually sense electrical signals. 
And there are some animals that send out electrical impulses and it's more like echolocation. So they send out these electrical impulses and they can detect um, changes in that or disturbances and so they can detect where things are using that. Is and that the platypus that uses that sort of technique? I don't know if... Yeah, I know platypus use... I don't know if they use oh. the active or just the passive. I don't know if they send out the electrical impulse. Yeah. I think they can receive it. Okay. I think they're more like the sharks where it's passive and they can yeah. they, detect they kind electrical. Of snuffle around. Yeah, but it's more things like electric eels and some types oh, okay. of fish and they actually send out their own electric impulse. Like we send out a sound mm. for echolocation and they can detect things. But yeah, the platypus is one of the um, animals that yeah can sense electrical impulses in the Although they, they do close their eyes when they're underwater. So, so they don't get water in them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's clever. But that's why they, yeah, they no, have that's... to nuzzle. They can't just sort of go in the water. They have to get a lot closer, closer to be able to find things. They can't just sort of dive in the water, feel where everything is and dive straight to mm. it. They have to nuzzle around and search because they have to be near it for the sense to properly get there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those senses that we don't have. Yeah. Well, another one that's really strong in animals um, is magnetoception, which is the sensing of the magnetic field of the earth. Yeah, um, which is one is of the more complex ones. Yeah. birds that use that for migration? There's birds use it for migration, bees, and it's just been noted recently-ish by some German scientists that cows use it. Cows? Because <laughs> cows go on migratory trips around <laughs> the world. Used, um, well, no, not for migration, but they've noticed um, using Google Earth. Yeah. Um, they what were they? They were looking for oh, something is else. Where they, they all stand and face the same north, way in the south. paddock. Yeah, yeah. South. all these cows are facing a north-south <laughs> direction, and they've noticed it using yes. Google Earth. And so they've looked at it, and they're oh, like, dear. and no herders or farmers have ever noticed it before. And they're like, oh, it could be due to wind or sun, but because yes. it happens globally on such a big scale, it's not likely that the wind and sun are going to affect them all in the same way yeah. and yeah it happens with deer and everything as well so wow i'm, I'm curious because the, the the magnetic poles swap positions every mm-hmm. i don't know how many years so i wonder what's going to happen to all the cows like they're going to have to turn around, they'll turn. <laughs> they'll turn around yeah. <laughs> they'll get a little bit of exercise <laughs> that patch of grass right in front of them there they'll just eat the patch of grass behind <laughs> them but will, yeah. it, will it muck up the birds all um, the birds have I, mean, I guess they would have some other way because we don't fully understand it we've only just recently come to understand we've always seen that they migrate and they can do it at night under cloudy mm. conditions because they will use the stars and the sun and things like that but yeah, cloudy nights there's nothing to give them any direction so we sort of were like well how are they doing this and you know the idea of them having an internal compass was kind of fun but uh, we're like well how are they actually going to have that they're an animal um, but the way they figured out what they do have is they found a bacteria that builds its own magnetite, which is a magnetic iron oxide. So it's a type of, yeah, iron. So it's a magnetic rock crystal sort of thing that these bacteria build. So they're like, well, if bacteria can build it, why can't it be in these in animals? animals? And yeah. using special machines and stuff, they tested and found that birds have a lot of magnetite and a lot of animals that do this sort of thing, like trout also use it and all these sorts of things. They have magnetite near their brain what? and bees actually have magnetite as well but in their abdomen i don't know if that's a, due to they're not using much of their brain or yeah. <laughs> they're not very big their abdomens no. not that far so it's not that far <laughs> from their brain but yeah they found this magnetite and would act more like a sort of little mini compass and aligns to the north south and that's how they use it to i mean we're not exactly sure how they 
transmit that information to their brain and everything. We're still sort of deciding it. But yeah, it's turtles and everything. They've done all sorts of studies putting magnets on their heads and they get confused. And <laughs> oh, so if, Only if it's cloudy, though. Like yeah. if oh, the okay. sun's out, they'll use that. Yeah. But yeah. if you take away the other stimuli, they'll get confused. confused. Yeah. And if you change the magnetic impulses around them, they'll turn around and go the other way and... All sorts of things. So if you want to turn some cows around, get some magnetic cowbells and then you just set. Well, it's interesting. The magnetoception um, is an interesting sense because humans are thought to have a really weak magnetoception, you know, as part of our sense of direction, which I wasn't sure of reading some of the stuff on this because honestly, um, people, I mean, some people have good sense of direction, I guess, and some people don't, and maybe that's because they've got more, more <laughs> magnetoception. Maybe we do have magnetites in our bodies. I'm not sure where this yeah, sense comes from. Yeah, I don't think from. it's been too, too, yeah. too well researched. They yeah. did some tests where they sort of asked people to point north and south and things like that, mm. and they found that people could, but it wasn't done in enough depth yeah. to be a proper scientific mm. decision that we have magnetoception or not. Yeah. No, it's certainly an interesting test and one of our other senses in there too. Um, there's also some other senses that we have and we are coming near the end of the show, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly and then we might finish off with um, my favourite sense of all because it's my show, so I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, another sense we have is temporal perception, which is the sense of time passing and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, but although, that changes as to whether you're having fun or not. It, it can be subjective, yeah. Um, but the sense of time is actually rooted in our biology. And uh, research shows that our basal ganglia and other parts of the brain are responsible for this sense of time. Um, and we do have, like, circadian rhythms in our bodies and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, when we suffer from jet lag and all that. Yeah. So there must be something inside us. Um and then we've also got our equilibrioception, which is uh, our sense of balance. And, and once again, this is an interesting one because this is a combination of different stimuli coming together. So we've got our eyes, our ears, and um, the body's sense of where it is in space all come together to give us our balance. Um, and certainly, uh, yeah, if you, you, you're lacking in one area, um, it can put out your balance. You know, if you've got a bad ear or something like that. There's a great story from um, Oliver Sacks, who we were talking about last week in some of his books. And in one of his books, um, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, he talks <laughs> about a patient who had this problem with his ears and didn't get the, the signals from his vestibular system in his ears. And so he couldn't balance. So to combat this, um, Dr. Sacks created some glasses for this patient where they had a little bit of liquid in them. And it was oh. like his own spirit level. And yeah. so when the liquid was flat... The, the patient knew he was on the straight and narrow so he could walk straight ahead and then when the liquid started to lean one way he could straighten up and respond to this visual stimulus um, yeah. without the need for the, the other Who's stimulus ears? from the ears. Oh, I think that would just get annoying. You'd kind of be like, oh, what's this? You know, like you, you've <laughs> got something on your thing? eyelash, yeah. you can see it out the corner of your eye, and you're like, yeah. oh, I just have to get the, it. I the think really faint be... scratch on your, on your sunglasses. Yeah, I think it would kind of be like that. You'd almost just be like, oh, it's not worth it. I'd prefer to fall. <laughs> well, that's... That's one, two, three, four. So that's nine senses now. Um, and I'm going to get to the tenth one in a second. But there's the other definition of a sense, too, um, is internal senses that we have um, to sense different things within our bodies, like to sense, you know, when we need to go to the bathroom, um, when our stomach's <laughs> full, when we need to breathe, and all those sorts of things. And that's where it comes into a bit of iffiness with that whole sense debate, which is why I gave the huge range to start with from eight to 23. Um, but the last sense I want to talk about is one that kind of comes in the, the 
outside sense and the inside sense too because it's proprioception um and it's it's one of those senses that we operate so smoothly with without knowing much about um and this is about knowing where our body is in space knowing where we are what's going on that sort of thing and to do this we receive signals from our muscles inside our body and also the world around us to know um, where our body is. And there's a test you can do of your proprioception. Um, so if you're not doing anything important at the moment, listeners, then um, please try this at home. Please, not if you're driving a car, because I want you to close your <laughs> eyes. Okay, close your eyes. Stick your hands out either side. Then take your... Yeah. Put your pointer fingers out. Hello. <laughs> take your left finger and touch your nose. And back out. And take your right finger and touch your nose. And back out. Oh, the girls in the studio have done very well here. Um, you passed the proprioception test. Um, and the, the reason we can do that without actually seeing where our fingers are is because of proprioception. Our body knows where our fingers are in space and where our nose is supposed to be. And so that sense works for us. Um, but for some people, it doesn't always work so well. And there's one more story we're going to tell today from Oliver Sacks' book again, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, about a man who lost his sense of proprioception. And um, he was in bed in hospital um, in the psychiatric ward and he was half asleep and he, he kind of woke up and suddenly felt this something in bed with him. It's always worrying. It is worrying. And he, and he felt down and he felt this cold leg. And he's like, what's going on here? And it was New Year's Eve at the time and um, the, the doctors were sort of partying about, you know, um, and that sort of thing. And he thought, oh, it must be a prank. You know, someone's got a cadaver and put it in my leg, which I mean is an odd sort of prank. But so he thought, well, look, that's ridiculous. So he threw the leg out of bed. But then suddenly he ended up on the floor. <laughs> what's going on? And the, not only was he on the floor, but he found that this dead leg that was in his bed had now been attached to him. And he was very confused. Um, and the, he called the nurses and the nurses came and they ended up getting Dr. Sachs and he was talking to him about it. And he, and he said, well, you know, just take a look at this leg. And he's like, but it's not, where's it come from? It's not mine. He said, well, if it's not yours, then where's your left leg? And he went, well, I don't know, but someone's replaced it with this strange cold thing. Um, and in fact, it was his leg, but he just lost all proprioception of it. And so didn't actually think that it was part of his body again. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with the phantom limbs, mm. not only pain, but people that um, have amputated limbs uh, to, to be able to use the prosthetic limbs well. They need to have that proprioception still there. And in fact, I, I love this. There was a guy who had an amputated leg and he had a prosthetic limb to replace it, but sometimes the proprioception wouldn't work. And to kind of help out, he'd actually hit his leg. <laughs> like like you hit a TV when it's not working. When the, when the proprioception was bad, he'd give his, his proper leg just a little bit of a whack and then he'd feel the, the phantom limb almost pop out of wow. him. Wow. <laughs> and, um, that would be a weird sensation. It would yeah. be. But then Very some strange. people that get other people's hands, like not just prosthetic limbs, but oh, a, a, a hand yeah. put on from someone else, mm. they feel like it's not theirs. Yeah. They, yeah, the proprioception's not right with it and they feel like it's not working in sync with their body and sometimes they tend to they're found to be burn themselves and things because they don't realize where their hand is in conjunction mm. like yes yeah, so they don't yeah. have proper proprioception yeah, that's right and in fact um even with just normal surgery um especially with sports players and that sort of thing uh, their proprioception is one of the last 
uh, parts to come back in the in terms of their senses. So if they have a, a knee operation or something like that, they might find their knee feels a bit funny until uh, they start working with it again and, and regain their proprioception. And certainly in terms of you know athletes and that sort of thing, um, proprioception can be a really important sense. And it'd be um, really weird like to just wake up one morning and not recognise your own I, leg. Like, but have you ever slept yeah. on your freaky. arm? Like you slept <laughs> oh, on your yeah. arm and then all of a sudden you feel like your arm's somewhere else and you see this hand in front of you like that's not mine my arm's down and like it yeah. feels like yeah. your arm's next to your body but it's in fact next or to your face or you wake face. up with your hand on your face and you're like that's the how did that one. get there very confusing senses in days <laughs> Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed our little chat today about all the different senses in the body, not just the five that we all learn in primary school, but there are a whole lot more out there. Maybe you can test your senses out today, and I'd encourage you to try that um, uh, test of your thermoception, oh, the hot, water, Emily, yeah. hot water. If uh, if you're at home, give it a go and, and feel that amazing um, sensation that <laughs> happens from it. If you did miss that, though, um, look... You can catch up on this episode on our podcast to do it. All you need to do is uh, open up your iTunes, type in Fuzzy Logic and look for the Fuzzy Logic podcast. Or you can download them from the web uh, at Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. And also on the web is our Facebook site. Click like and you can get all the updates of what's going on in our show and um, all the interesting little tidbits we find on the internet. But for now, I think it's time that we say goodbye. It's been a pleasure to have you with us listeners, and it's been a pleasure to have you in the studio, Emily. No Thanks, safe, Rod. Safe riding home on your uh, electric, <laughs> electric skateboard. skateboard. I hope the, batteries are, the battery's not going to go flat. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> right. She's on a mobile just yeah. in case. Just in case. Yeah. You can give Jill a call in her car if you do get stuck. <laughs> and, um, safe drive to you, Jill. Thanks for coming on. The pleasure's been all mine. Oh, fantastic. Thanks very much <laughs> once again. And that's Fuzzy Logic for another Sunday. Yeah.